prepare our hearts to hear from God's Word this morning. Lord, we just thank You. We praise You for Your Word. We just ask, Lord, that right now that our hearts would be softened and prepared to hear from You. And Lord, again, that You would be our teacher, not men. Father God, we're just desperate, Lord, to meet You here. And Father, we thank You that Your Word is living and breathing. And Father, I pray that it would minister to each heart. Draw us nearer to You. Father God, we thank You, we praise You, we worship You, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. As we come to Luke 22, we are now several days into what is called Passion Week. It's the final week that Jesus Christ is on the earth before His crucifixion, His resurrection, and then later He would ascend to the Father. But it's final week before His crucifixion. And we know we looked at the last couple of weeks that the, the first day when He came into Jerusalem, He got a hero's welcome. And we saw that they said Hosanna, and they, they, they basically greeted Him as the Messiah that they had long been waiting for. But when Jesus did not fulfill what they thought the Messiah should do, which is overthrow Rome, when He didn't go into the, to the government and overthrow the government, but instead He went into the church and turned over some tables because they turned His Father's house into a den of thieves. All of a sudden, the people that were crying out Hosanna would soon be the same people that would cry out crucify Him. We talked about the fact that in the last week, that when, they, when Passover was coming, and this was Passover week, that there was a, a tradition where they brought that lamb in and watched the lamb for four days prior to sacrificing it to the Lord. They examined the lamb to make sure it was perfect. And it's interesting that they came and began to question Jesus on the very day that they began examining the Passover lamb. So as they were examining the, the Passover lamb, they were examining the true Passover lamb. They were examining Jesus Christ. And they examined Him and they questioned Him and they tried to trip Him up and we know it was to no avail. So as you come this morning, we're going to look, and I want uh, the title that God put on my heart for the message this morning is a contrast in perspectives. As we get to Passion Week, people are going to look at Passion Week in totally different ways. We're going to see that the, the priest and the, and the religious leaders of the day are going to look at it in one way. We're going to see that Judas is going to look at it in yet another way. We're going to see that the disciples have their own plan or, or thoughts about this final week, and also Peter himself. But then we're going to see our Lord's heart, and our Lord's heart as He comes to the final week going to the crucifixion. You know, as Christians, we are followers of Christ, not of religion. Amen? We're not followers of religion. We're not followers of denominations. We're not followers of men. We are followers of Jesus Christ, and crucified and risen from the dead. We're not followers of the apostles. You know, God used them mightily after Pentecost. They're mighty men of God. We're going to see today that they're a bunch of knuckleheads prior to Pentecost. These guys blow it hard, man. They're just messing up all over the place. And you know what? In some ways, that's, a, that's an encouragement to me to know that I can blow it and God can still use me mightily. We are to be like Him in our love for the lost, in our hearts to serve, and in our perspective to have an eternal, not a physical one. So as we get to to verse 1 of chapter 22, just to set it up. Jesus had steadfastly set His eyes toward Jerusalem. He knew that when He got there, He was going to be crucified. He knew He was going to suffer and die. And yet He set His eyes steadfastly. It says in Luke 9, verse 51, Now it came to pass when the time had come for Him to be received up that He steadfastly set His face to go to Jerusalem. What lay before our Savior was a divine appointment, not an accident. It wasn't bad luck. It wasn't a trap. He went there purposely, and He went there with a purpose in mind, which is to pay the price that you and I could not pay. 
Our love and admiration for our Lord and our Savior ought to grow as we see Him courageously enter into this time of suffering, eventual torturous death, as we remember, why did He do it? Why did Jesus go? Why did He suffer? Why did He face the torment? Because He loves you guys. That's why. Because He loves you so very much. You are always on His mind. You are His treasured possession. And He went through all of this out of His love for you. So let's begin. We're going to look at the the chief priests and the scribes and what they see in Passion Week, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 22. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover. Now remember what Passover is. Passover is a, a, at this point, hundreds of years old tradition remembering when they've been delivered out of bondage in Egypt. And we remember when they were delivered out of bondage in Egypt, the Passover was the final the curse that God brought, the final plague that God brought upon Egypt so that they would let the Israelites go. And remember what Passover was. They took the firstborn spotless lamb, they brought it in and they slit its throat. They took the blood of that lamb and they put it on the doorpost and on the sides of the door, making a perfect picture of what? The cross. And those who had the, the blood of the lamb in the shape of the cross upon their doorpost, the angel of death would pass over, and they were delivered out of bond. And through that, God delivered them out of bondage in Egypt, a picture of sin. Being delivered out of bondage, that's what it points to. So now this is Passover. And at this time of Passover, this Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Jews would come in, all, all males over the age of 13 were required to come to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. So at Passover, Jerusalem would swell to several million people. It would explode with people. And so all these people were coming, and as they came, they were coming to observe the Passover feast, not realizing that the ultimate Passover was at hand. That it wasn't just to sacrifice a lamb, but that the, truly that the Lamb of God was going to be sacrificed. Verse 2, And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. So how did the scribes and the Pharisees view this ultimate Passover? What was their perspective? What did they see in Jesus Christ? The priests and the scribes viewed Jesus as a threat to their way of life. These guys were the religious leaders of the day. They were the ones that were transcribing the Old Testament. They were the ones that taught in the synagogue about the coming Messiah, and yet they were going to miss Him completely and actually be the ones that would call out for His crucifixion. Why? Because ultimately, these guys were really biblically illiterate, and realistically, these guys were focused on themselves. They viewed religion as a way to get ahead. You have to realize that the priests and the Pharisees were the richest of the people of the day. They used the church as a way to make money. Does that sound familiar? Right? There are a lot of people out there today that view the body of Christ as a money-making operation. And the priests looked at Jesus and they wanted Him dead. But they were afraid of the people. They said, you know what? If we go out and we just arrest Him, the people will be all over us because they've seen Jesus perform miracles. You know, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Do you remember what they wanted to do with Lazarus after Jesus raised him from the dead? What did they want to do? They wanted to kill him, because that's a hard testimony to overcome. I mean, you go to someone's funeral on Friday, and he shows up at work on Monday, I think that's a testimony. Amen? Dude, well, I, I was at your funeral. What are you doing here? Oh, I, you know, Jesus raised me from the dead. You know, so they said, man, we've got to kill this Lazarus guy, because we can't refute that. And they couldn't refute Jesus' words either, and so they wanted to put him to death. Amazing. The religious leaders of the day want to kill the Lamb of God. And that's exactly what would come to pass. At this Feast of Unleavened Bread, again, there was this time of remembering God's deliverance. And instead of being focused on this perfect Lamb of God, instead they were looking at Him as somebody who was infringing on their life. You know, it's not, a lot, not unlike a lot of people today. 
They don't want to become a Christian because they think, well, Jesus will infringe upon my life. I won't be able to live the way I want and do what I want and talk the way I want. I'm going to have to give up stuff and I won't be able to you know, just go out and party if I want to and, and you know, date a bunch of men or a bunch of women or whatever it might be. Or, you know, I won't be able to chase after my career. You know, I'm going to have to give something up if I serve God. And I just don't want to do that. I want to eliminate Him. I don't like the conviction that it brings when I hear His name. Just get rid of Him from me. Get Him out of my sight. And that's the government that we serve today. You know, we can't have the Ten Commandments on the wall. Why? Because it convicts people. We can't have a cross up. Oh, I don't want to see the cross. It convicts me. And so that's how these priests were. They said, man, we know we got to get rid of this Jesus. He's infringing on our lifestyle. You know, we had a good gig going until He showed up. we got to get rid of Him. And that was their heart. we got to get rid of Jesus. Now, along with the chief priest, we're also going to look at the way Judas viewed this time of Passion Week. Judas is going to view Jesus as a disappointment. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Look at verse 3, and it's interesting. Then Satan entered Judas, surname Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. Now it's interesting that they feared the people and they did not want to go grab Jesus publicly because if they did, they knew that there would be a mob that rise up against them. So they thought, we've got to find a way to know when Jesus is not going to be around a crowd of people so we can grab him then. Along comes Judas. Perfect timing. Here's somebody that says, I know when he goes to pray. I know a time we can go find him when nobody else will be around and you can grab him then. So here's Judas, and what a mind-blower Judas is to me. Can you imagine walking with Jesus for three years, seeing every miracle he performed, all the awesome works of Almighty God, and then betraying him for the price of a slave for 30 pieces of silver? But that's exactly what Judas would do. And it says here that Satan entered him. Satan enters only those who open themselves to him. You know what? In the world today, there are a lot of people, and you know what? I think we give Satan too much credit sometimes, but the reality is that Satan, we battle not with flesh and blood, the Bible says, but with powers and principalities and evil forces of darkness in high places. And it is a spiritual battle we're in, not a physical one. And here's the reality. So Satan desires to get a hold of people, and he gets a hold of them today through the music that they listen to. He gets a hold of them today through the, the occult. He gets a hold of them today through astrology and Ouija boards and all those kinds of things where, we, where people open themselves up to the enemy as opposed to opening themselves up to Jesus Christ. Satan enters Judas. And you know what? He's going to duplicate himself in Judas. Why? Because Satan is a murderer. He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he's a liar. And guess what? It's exactly the kind of person Judas became when Satan entered him. He walked with Jesus. He heard him teach. He witnessed his miracles. He saw him heal the blind. He saw him raise the dead. He saw him touch the lepers and take the leprosy away. And he's still going to, to turn him in. Now, why did Judas do this? What happened to Judas? Why, why did he do this? We know that, again, he was led by Satan, but ultimately he was disappointed. Why? Judas wanted a Messiah who would overthrow Rome, and then he would be one of the people in charge. He was the treasurer. He, was, he envisioned being the treasurer of Rome. I'm going to be in charge of all the money in Rome, and I want a Messiah who's going to go in there and smoke the Romans. Wait, what do you mean you're not going? Wait a minute, what do you mean? Oh, wait a minute. So he, took, he was disappointed because he didn't give him stuff. He didn't feed his flesh. Let me tell you right now, God will never feed your flesh. And the Bible says your flesh will never be satisfied. Amen? No matter how much you feed your flesh, it will always want more. And you know what? Judas was a man who wanted his flesh fed, and Jesus wasn't going to feed it, so he was disappointed. So now he thought, okay, now what am I going to do? 
I've got to find a way to, to turn this relationship into something that's to my advantage. And so literally, he opened himself up, Satan enters him, and he turns Jesus into a money-making opportunity, a place where he can line his pockets. And amazingly, he sells him for the price of a slave. Verse 4, So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and the captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Look, I'll find a time when he's alone and then I'll let you guys know and we can go get him and you can arrest him and you can grab hold of him. I can't imagine how hard Judas's heart must have been. And as we move through the text, you're even going to see how much harder his heart must have been with the things that Jesus does to him. You know, one of the things I thought about that I've never thought about before in 15 plus years of teaching the Bible, I wonder where the money came from that they used to bribe Judas. And as I thought about it and I went back and looked, you know, there was money given in the temple that was given for them to go out and purchase lambs to sacrifice on the Passover. And that money was given to the priest quite often, and they would literally go out and purchase the lambs that would then be sacrificed at Passover. And I don't know this for sure, but I think it's very logical to believe that they may have actually taken money that was spent on Passover lambs and given it to Judas to literally betray the Passover lamb. They didn't realize that what they were paying for was the ultimate Passover lamb, the Son of the living God who would come to suffer and die for us on our behalf. Now we move on from looking at Judas's perspective on Passion Week and the priests and the, and the elders and the scribes to Jesus's perspective of Passion Week. Look at, look at verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying, go prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. Now what's interesting to me as we go through these next 13 verses, we're going to see Jesus as he looks at Passion Week, he's one going to reveal his sovereignty, that he's an all-knowing God and he's in control. He's going to reveal his love for his disciples and his coming death and ascension. And lastly, he's going to reveal himself as the sacrificial lamb. Beginning, he starts by revealing his sovereignty. Passover has come, it's the day that the lamb must be killed, and he sends Peter and John out and says, go prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. Now, this was no small task. Peter and John literally had to go out, and they had to buy a lamb, and then they had to take it in, have it inspected by the priest. Then they had to, they had to have the lamb uh, killed. Then they would bring the lamb back and have it roasted. And then they would bring it in, and they would have to go out and get the, the wine and go out and get the bread and the bitter herbs and prepare this Passover feast. And the Lord said, Peter and John, I want you to go, and I want you to prepare for us so that we might have this feast. Take the lamb. Now it says there in verse 9. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you've entered the city, a certain man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house when he enters. Then you shall say to his master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There make ready. So they went and found it just as he said to them, and they prepared the Passover. Here we see a clear picture of the fact that God is in control, that he is sovereign. He knows what's next. Amen? Jesus was not arrested and drug away to the cross. As we're going to see in a couple of weeks, who arrested whom? Jesus is going to arrest them. They don't arrest him. Remember when they come to arrest Jesus and they say, Are you Jesus of Nazareth? Are you the one? And he says, 
I am. And what happens to all the people who come to arrest him? Who remembers? They all fall straight backward. Remember what else happened? Peter gets up and cuts the guy's ear off. We're going to see this in a couple weeks. What does Jesus do? He bends down and puts the guy's ear back on. Now you would think if you're arresting a guy when he says, I am, and you fall straight flat over backward, and then he puts your ear back on, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. Maybe this isn't such a good idea after all. But the reality is that this was God's perfect plan. And they didn't arrest Jesus. They didn't drag him away. He willingly went. Why? Because he had to, because of his love for us, to restore sinful man back to holy God. Now, it's interesting to me that at Passover, they gathered together as families to have the Passover feast. And isn't it interesting that Jesus gathers, not with his earthly mom and and brothers, but with the apostles. And you know what that means? That we're family, you guys. Amen? That when we become children of God, we are family. I love our agape feast. I want to encourage you to hang out even if you bring food. I love just hanging out and fellowshipping because we truly are family. And the Lord said, this is my family. Go and prepare the Passover feast. We're going to gather together and we're going to observe it together. Can you imagine sitting and having a meal with Jesus? And that's exactly what was going to happen. Now it's interesting, again, that they said when you go, you're going to see a man carrying a pitcher of water. This would be unusual in those days because only women would carry pitchers. So they would walk in and he knew that a man would be there and he'd be carrying a pitcher of water and there's the divine appointment. It's right in front of your eyes. When Jesus says something is going to happen, you can absolutely trust it to be true. Now, Peter and John listened to his words. They went out and did what he said. They responded in obedience and faith, and they saw the fulfillment of his promise. It's also interesting to note that there's a servant in this text that nobody knows his name, but he made his house available for the Lord. You know what? I want to ask you something. Is your house available for God to use it? It ought to be. Amen? Isn't it his house? Isn't it his car? Isn't it his stuff? Doesn't it all belong to him? And we should make our, everything we have available for God to use. Every gift that we have, everything that we do, it all comes from him. It originates from him. And we ought to cast our crowns back at his feet, just as we sang this morning. And this man said, hey, if the master needs it, take it. It's the Lord's anyway. And we should have that kind of a heart. I believe God has a special reward for those who serve him in secret, as this man had done. So it says, they went and they found it just as Jesus said that they would. And I want you to know that I believe that in the life of the believer, that we have divine appointments in our life every single day. Every single day, I believe God is putting people into our path that He wants us to minister to. It may not always be sitting down and going through you know, a gospel presentation. Sometimes it's just putting your arm around somebody and encouraging them and loving on them and praying for them. That's the way the church ought to be. So often though, we're so focused on doing the stuff right? Arranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, right? Doing the stuff that's perishing and we're missing out on the stuff that's eternal. And I believe those divine appointments come every single day. And we need to wake up every morning praying, saying, Lord, show me these opportunities. And Lord, help me to be faithful. And Lord, use me today for your kingdom and for your glory. Lord, let me make an eternal significance today. You know, I had a wonderful weekend. Friday, I spoke at Valley Christian to 1,200 teenagers and got to share the gospel with them. Man, what a, what a blessing. Yesterday, God speak, I don't know how many kids were there, seven, eight hundred, something like that, got to share the gospel with all these skaters. It was awesome. Those are divine appointments. Those are a total blessing. But at the same time, last week, I was on a, most of you know I'm still working full time, I go out on a sales call, and I get to sit across the table and share the love of God with somebody for a couple of hours. You know what? I believe that, that I miss those opportunities a lot. And my prayer would be we wouldn't. This man didn't miss his divine appointment. When the Lord said, I need your house, he said, come on in, take it. 
may we be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, we're going to see that He reveals His love for His disciples. When the hour had come, He sat down and the twelve apostles with Him. Then He said, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. When they came in to have the Passover, the disciples didn't fully understand what was about to happen. They're sitting around the table. They've, they've had many feasts with our Lord, and they have no idea what's about to happen. But what's about to happen is a revelation that our, our Savior is going to suffer. And He was revealing deep spiritual truths to them. Now, it's interesting that in John's account, we see that before they ate the Passover feast, Jesus did something. He girded Himself, and He got down on His hands and knees, and He washed the feet of all of His apostles. Can you imagine? Here he is, the perfect Lamb of God, the Son of the living God, and he gets down on his hands and knees and he washes the feet of the apostles. Now guess who one of the people was whose feet he washed? Judas. Jesus washed Judas's feet literally hours before he betrayed him. When Judas came in, we know from other gospel accounts that the Lord greeted him and each of the apostles with a kiss on the cheek. Then he got down on his knees and he washed their feet. And yet Judas was preparing in his heart to go and sell out his master for the price of a slave. With fervent desire of desire to eat this Passover with you. Though the cross was near, we, we clearly see our Savior's love for his disciples. He longed both to eat with them, to fellowship with them, and to reveal even deeper truths to them about himself. He couldn't wait. He wanted to show them the truth. He wanted to prepare their hearts for what was coming. He wanted to fellowship with them. This is going to be the last opportunity. And he longed for that. He desired that. Even though he knew that at the end of it, the cross was coming. What well, was because of his passion and his love for each one of us and his love for his apostles? Verse 16. Again, for I say to you, I'll no longer eat of it until the, it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup, and we're going to do this in a few minutes, and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Here Jesus begins to go past the suffering of the present time and points to the glory which lays beyond it. You know, beyond the cross, there was going to be a crown. Beyond His, his death upon the cross, there was going to be yet another feast. He said, you know what, this is the last time I'm going to eat this with you here on earth, but one day we're going to have this feast and it's going to be up in heaven. It's going to be in glory. It's not going to be here anymore. And you know what? One of these days, we're going to sit and eat with our Savior. Isn't that awesome? It blows my mind that I'm going to see Jesus one day and I can hardly wait. And you know what? When I think about things like that, it gets my eyes off of the stuff that is perishing and gets my eyes on the stuff that's eternal. When this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. Nothing else is going to matter when we get to heaven. Nobody's going to worry about how much money was in our 401k plan. Nobody's going to worry about how, how big our house was. You know, or how yoked our, our biceps were, or whatever, you know, that we're into. You know what? It's all going to be about what we've done for eternity. And there's a feast coming, and I'm looking forward to it. Verse 19. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup afterwards, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, you have to understand that for over 1,500 years, they've been having this feast, not fully understanding what it represented. And here Jesus is explaining it for the first time. 
You know, all those times you've been taking that bread and not understanding what it meant, let me tell you what that bread is. It's my body that's going to be broken for you. You know, all those times you've been taking that cup and drinking that cup and not fully understanding what it meant, that cup is my blood which will be shed for you on the cross. You know, the sad part is the Jews still have this feast and they still don't understand what it represents. Now, there are many Jews that have come to know Christ, but the Jewish nation as a whole. Do you know, it's amazing to me that in the Passover feast, one of the things they do, and I've shared this with you before, they have three pieces of matzah bread that are exactly the same. And they pull one piece out of the middle, and they break it in half, and they wrap it in linen, and they hide it. Now, you got three pieces exactly the same, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They take the middle piece out, God the Son, they break it in half, a picture of the crucifixion. They wrap it in linen and they hide it for the children to find. And what, was Jesus, what happened to Jesus after He was crucified? He was wrapped in linen and He was put into the tomb. And after the children find it, they celebrate because they found that pizza. And you know what? The scary part is they observe this and don't understand that it so clearly points to Jesus Christ. And they'd been observing this feast for hundreds of years and didn't fully understand until He said, this bread is my body. And this, this wine is my blood. And that's what this represents. And you need to understand that. Now, if they'd really been listening, they would have said, oh, Lord. But the sad part is that these are the, the and the scary part is these, these are the apostles, not the B-apostles, but these apostles prior to Pentecost are just not getting it. And we're going to see that even though he reveals this great truth to them, look what it says in verse 21. Now he tells them about the blood, and then he says, But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me at the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as is determined, but woe to that man for, by whom he is betrayed. So he reveals to them the truth of what the blood is. And I want to say one more thing about verse 20. The new covenant is my blood. The old covenant pointed to the blood of the Lamb that pointed to the coming Messiah. The new covenant reveals that Jesus is the Messiah. We are no longer under the Old Covenant. Amen? We're not dragging lambs in here and sacrificing lambs and sprinkling blood on altars anymore. And aren't you glad? Amen? What a mess church would be. Can you imagine? And we're not doing that anymore. Praise God. Because the perfect Lamb of God paid the price for us and we're living in the New Covenant. And He said, this is my blood of the New Covenant. Old Covenant, done. We're in the New Covenant now. Praise God. And so we see here that He tells them and He reveals this to them, but then He says, you know what? The, betra- the one who's going to betray me is sitting right here at the table. And he says, you know what? This is all a part of my perfect plan. My going to the cross is not by chance. It's a divine appointment. And even though it's going to be, Judas is going to be used as a tool for this, woe unto him for what he has done. Now some people will say, wait a minute. You know, Pastor, it doesn't seem very fair that Judas was a part of God's perfect plan because through his betrayal, Jesus was crucified. But yet, woe is he that He is the one who betrayed the Messiah. Here's the thing, you guys. God knows the hearts of men. And Judas chose to betray Him. God knew He would use that as a part of His perfect plan, but He did not force Judas to betray Him. Judas chose to do it. And woe unto that man. You know, the Bible says it would be better for Judas if he had never been born. Jesus said that. That's heavy. You know, that's not a good sign when Jesus says about you, it'd be better if you had never been born. 
Amen? That's not good. You don't want to have that happening. You want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what you want to hear. Not depart from me, for I know you not. And he says, you know what? It would be better if he had never been born. That's heavy. And the sad part is that Judas had tasted the truth, but had never accepted it. He had walked with Jesus. He had been around Jesus. One of the things I shared with the, with the kids yesterday is, is there, what I call in Christianity today, there's a lot of posers. And what I mean by that you guys are surfers, you know what I'm talking about. When I went to high school, there was a lot of wannabes. Now, I'm not a surfer myself, but I wasn't a poser either. But there's a lot of guys, you know, they have, they have the, the surf racks on their car, and they'd have the, the surfboard on the top of their car, and they'd have all the stickers on the top of their surfboard, and they'd wear the surfer clothes, and they'd have the surfer haircut, and they'd walk around saying, Rad, man, and they'd never been in the ocean. You know, they were wannabes. They were posers. And you know what? In the church today, there's a lot of posers. There's a lot of people that got the Christian stickers on their car. They got the, you know, the, the, the dove on their car and the Christian fish on their car. And they wear the Christian t-shirts. And they got the cross in their house. And they got all the Christian lingo down. Praise the Lord, brother, and all that kind of stuff. And they got the lingo down, but they're posers. They've walked around God. They know about God, but they have never had a personal, intimate head-on collision with Jesus Christ, having their lives transformed, becoming new creations in Him, and sold out for Him. You know what? That's what the Lord's looking for. Christianity is not one hour on Sunday and one hour on Wednesday. Amen? It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and Jesus Christ must be first. Above all else. Above my job, above my family. Whoa, Pastor Dave, slow down. Hey, you know what? If I want to be a great husband, if I'm in love with Jesus, I'm going to be a great husband. If I'm in love with Jesus, I'm going to be an awesome dad. Amen? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. How scary it must be. You know what? Judas, it says in the companion text, that he walked out and it was night. And you know what? For Judas, it's still night. He's in hell right now, weeping, torment, gnashing of teeth. He's there and he's going to be there forever. Oh man, talking about hell. Man, pastor, come on. Lighten up a little bit. Hey, here's the reality. I'd rather tell you about it than have you experience it. Amen? And there's too many churches where they say, oh man, you can't be talking about hell. People won't come to church anymore. Well, you know what? Here's the reality, guys. I want to see you in love with Jesus, not just knowing about Him. I'd hate for you to go to church every week and think that Christianity is just going to church once in a while. You know, throwing 10 bucks in the basket or whatever it might be. That's not Christianity. It's not religion. It's a relationship. And Judas missed it. He walked around the Lord for three years. And I'm praying for you guys. None of you are walking around the Lord. If you've just been walking around Him, and you've been a poser, it's time to get in the water. Amen? It's time to say, okay, Lord, I, I, you know what? I want to stop pretending I know you. I don't want to give my life to you. Man, that's radical, isn't it? But you know what? It's time for Christians to be radical today. Amen? People are coming out of the closet for everything else. It's time for the Christians to be coming out of the closet for Jesus Christ. Amen? It's time for us. You know what? God used 12 people to turn the known world upside down. There's, I don't know, 100 people in here. What could we do to Santa Cruz if we were all radical and on fire for Jesus Christ? What would happen to this city? Amen? Santa Cruz means Holy Cross, and my prayer is that it will be remembered as that one more day again before Christ comes back. And so we see here that he institutes, he's going to institute communion. And he institutes it and he encourages. And in, in communion, here's three things. We're going to look at communion in a minute. We're going to have it ourselves. But here's the thing. In communion, we should be looking back to the cross. We should be looking forward to that great feast when we get to heaven. And we should be looking within because the Bible says when we take communion, we should never take it with unconfessed sin in our hearts. 
And if we take communion, we need to look back to the cross and remember what He did for us. He said, it is finished and the price has been paid. We should be looking forward with anticipation for that day when we're going to have a feast with Him in heaven forever and ever, and it's going to be awesome. And then we should be looking within, examining our own hearts before we take communion. Woe unto the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question, verse 23, among themselves, which of them it was that was going to do this thing. Now here's the scary part. Can you imagine? They've been walking with Judas for three years and they had no idea that he was the one that was going to betray them. Here's the disciples' problem. The disciples are self-centered and totally oblivious to reality. That's a fact. Now, this is the the apostles before Pentecost, okay? After Pentecost, these guys are willing to die for Christ. Before Pentecost... It's all about me. And we're going to see here in the next verse. So they're saying, well, I wonder who it is. I wonder which one. Well, who could it be? I don't know. Is it, and in the companion text, they even say, is it I, Lord? They raise their hand. Am I the one that's going to betray you? Am I the one that's going to betray you? They, they don't even know Judas's heart, and they don't even know their own hearts. These guys are sitting there going, oh, is it me? I hope it's not me. They don't know their own hearts. Why? Because they've been walking with the Lord, but they truly have not been filled with the Spirit. Pentecost had not yet come. There's a word of warning to the rest of the apostles, and it's also an exhortation and an opportunity. I believe one last chance for Judas to repent. Do you know that Jesus loved Judas? Do you know that? He loved him. Do you know what broke his heart that Judas betrayed him? It hurt him. He loved Judas. And he said, what you do, go and do quickly. But you know what? I believe he's given him one last chance. The betrayer's here at the table with me. Judas, I know it's you. Judas, I know what you're about to do. Here's one last chance. I love you. I'm going to die for you. I love you. I love the fact that that's our God. I love the fact that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. I love the fact that God never gives up on us. We walk away from Him. But He loves us. He loves us. He loves us. What a great and awesome God that we serve. Is it I? We don't know. Is it me? Am I the one? You know what's important? They didn't understand who Judas was, but Jesus did. And your position before men and what people think about you is really pretty irrelevant. Because it won't matter on Judgment Day. Well, people thought I was pretty nice. I mean, hey, are we going to have a vote on this, Lord, on whether or not I get to heaven or what? What are we doing here, right? It's not how popular we are with men, but who God sees that we really are. The Bible says that man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. That's why we spend so much time on our outward appearance, don't we? You know, we don't want to, we want to look good, right? You know, we want to look, you know, we've all probably brushed our teeth and our hair this morning, right? We didn't want to, like, offend people with our, with our looks or anything. And, you know, we want to make sure that people approve of us. But the reality is that as much time as we spend trying to earn the approval of men, we should spend ten times as much time falling in love with Jesus and drawing near to Him because that's what really matters. And so we see here that He says to them, you know, they say, well, is it me, Lord? Am I the one? And they're oblivious. Again, they don't understand. They don't get it. They did not know the true character of Judas. They saw no difference in how Jesus treated Judas. I think that's interesting. That Jesus treated Judas the same, even though he was the betrayer. Though Judas lived with, ate with, traveled with, testified of, and performed miracles alongside him, he was not a true follower of Christ. And again, many may fool men, but none will fool God. Verse 24. Now look at this. Now he tells them that one of them is about to betray him, and they're all saying, well, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? 
And then Judas goes out, and then look at the very next verse. These guys just kill me sometimes. Look at verse 24. Now there was also a dispute among them as to which one of them should be considered the greatest. What? Now wait a minute. They're just going, is it me? Am I the one that's going to betray you, Lord? Oh, it's not me, is it? Oh, no. And you know what? I, I think this, this conversation, if they were talking about which one would be the betrayer, that they started getting a little puffed up and like, well, dude, I ain't going to be betraying him. I'm, hey, you know, I'm Pe- he called me Peter, dude. I'm the rock, okay? You know, I mean, you guy, he didn't tell you that. And you remember when he asked about it, he said, you know, the, the Holy Spirit had revealed to me when I said that he was the, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Remember that? Hey, he didn't say that to any of you guys, right? And these guys are starting to argue about which one of them is the greatest. The apostles. What's up with these guys? Oh, is it me? Am I going to betray you? I'm greater than you, dude. No, I'm way greater than you. I'm better than you. And you know what the sad part is? That these guys are a picture of, of a lot of what happens in the church today. The most important event in human history is about to happen, and these guys are arguing over which one of them is the greatest. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, and they're debating over which one of them was the best. I'm better than you. Jesus tells them what they're thinking, and that they're thinking like unsaved believers. He said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? It is not he who sits at the ta- is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. The world says the greatness is determined on how many people serve you. Never heard anybody say that before? Oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm vice president of such such company. I got 120 people working for me. Right? You ever hear that kind of terminology? Now I got 75 guys reporting to me. And somehow, the more people that report to you, somehow that makes you greater. The more people that serve you, the greater you are. And the Bible tells us it's the exact opposite. Greatness is not in how many people serve you, but in how many people you serve. Jesus had just washed their feet, and they're arguing over who's greatest. And he's saying, Did, wait a minute. Didn't you see? I just served you. I just washed your feet. I just ministered to you. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, the Bible says, learn to be the servant of all. Since all Christians are be servants, there's no reason for us to compete with each other over honor and recognition. And sadly, in the church today, there are many people promoting themselves and their ministries. You know what? God has called us all to be servants, not celebrities. Amen? We're servants. And yet it scares me that there are ministries and people that promote themselves, a worldwide ministry and somebody's name after it. Man, it makes me sick. Wait a minute. It's not about you. It's about Him. Amen? And you know what? My prayer is that we would be so transparent that people would not walk away talking about how great the speaker is, talking about how talented the worship team is, or talking about how wonderful this person is or wonderful that person is. I want them to walk out of here talking about how wonderful God is. And how great it was to enter into His presence. Because He alone is the one that to be worshipped and to be honored and to be praised. Amen? And these guys didn't get it. And people still today are arguing over who is the greatest. Verse 28, we're almost done. But, to you, are the, but you are those who are, have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus finished off this this section by pointing out that our ultimate reward for a servant's heart is not in the here and now, but it's in heaven. That's where the ultimate reward comes. You know what, though? I want to tell you something. 
There's nothing I love more, and it absolutely blows my mind, that God lets me be used to minister to others on His behalf. Blows my mind. Doesn't that blow your mind that God uses you? Doesn't that blow your mind? I can't believe that I get to teach the Bible. I can't believe that God lets me do this. It blows my mind. And you know what? God has gifted every one of you. He's called, if you were saved, He didn't save you to be a big pew potato. Amen? You know, just biggest, fattest sheep around, right? Feed, feed, feed. He saved you so that He might use you. And doesn't it blow your mind that the Creator of the universe wants to use you to minister to others? What a privilege. What an awesome get-to. I can't believe that we get to do that. And He says to them, but... On top of all that, not only did I suffer and die for you, not only did I pay the price for you, not only did I hang on the cross, not only did I, I take away all of your sin and place it upon myself, not only did I save you and then adopt you into my family, but I'm going to give you gifts that you might use them for my glory. And then if you use those gifts that I've given you, I'm going to give you rewards when you get to heaven. What an awesome God that we serve, amen? All other gods that the world have want to take, 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 take. Our God wants to give, 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 give. Amen? If you ever go to church and they want to take from you, something's up. What's up with that? I don't, you know, give me a thousand seed dollars and I'll, you know, I'll stop it. You know what? God doesn't need your money. Amen? Our Father has a cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need you to... You know, why don't those guys ever want to give money away? If they believe in seed giving, why don't they give you a thousand dollars, right? But the reality is there's too many places where the focus is on the here and the now and on the physical and they want to take from you. Our Lord wants to give to you. He wants to bless you. He loves you. He's your father. Fathers love their children. Lastly, Peter, just four verses here. And, it's, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. It's interesting that he put, picks out Peter right after they're arguing over who's the greatest. And I have an idea that Peter's probably talking the loudest. Because that's kind of Peter, isn't it? Peter's the guy that, you know, ready ready, fire, aim kind of guy, right? You know, cut the air off first, and oh, I wasn't supposed to do that, oh, okay. I mean, he's always the one that, that shoots off his mouth, oh, oh, okay, I wasn't supposed to do that. And that's Peter. Peter's go, go, go. And we see here that the Lord turns to him and says, oh, Pete. Peter's over there, I'm, the, I'm Peter, I'm the rock, dude, rock, Peter. And isn't it interesting here that when the Lord addresses him, what does he call him? Look at what it says in that verse. Simon, Simon. Isn't that his old name? Simon means shifting sand. Peter means rock. And he's over there arguing with these guys about who's the greatest. And the Lord looks at him and says, Simon, shifting sand, shifting sand. Simon, Simon, man, you know what? Satan's been asking for you. He wants to sift you. And you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be praying for you. And here's the thing. Satan wants to sift us. But isn't it awesome to know that our Savior is interceding on our behalf? As Satan was coming to sift Peter, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father interceding. That's what he's doing with us. He's interceding on our behalf. Jesus prays for me. Jesus prays for you. Doesn't that blow your mind that Jesus prays for you? Awesome. What a great and a wonderful God that we serve. Verse 33. But he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go, go with you both to prison and to death. And he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you shall deny me three times that you know me. Peter, probably again the most outspoken and self-confident of the apostles, boasted that he would die for Christ. And you know what I notice in God's Word? Quite often, the place that people fail the most is the place of their own greatest strength. You know, where did Abraham fail? Abraham was the father of what? Faith. But what happened when the famine came? He ran down to Egypt, 
right? He lacked faith. He ends up picking up a maidservant for his wife by the name of Hagar. They end up having a baby named Ishmael. And now look at the Middle East, right? That's a fact. Now, why did that happen? Because Abraham, the father of faith, ran. Now, Moses was gifted with meekness and humility. But what happened that, caused him to, that kept him out of the land of promise? He smote the rock in anger. Do you remember that? Picture of Christ. He smote the rock in anger. Quite often, it's the area of our greatest strength where we take the greatest fall. You know why? I believe it's a danger that we start to trust in our ability in that area. We're desperate. We know the areas are weak, and we cry out daily, Lord, you've got to help me. I'm going to blow it. Lord, I need your help. But there's areas where we start to feel like, well, I've pretty much got that handled. You know, Lord, I'm, I'm pretty good at that. I, I'm good. Okay. And you know what? It's in those areas where we think we are strong. The Bible says, take heed lest ye fall. Amen? And you know what? Where was Peter's greatest area of, of strength? Boldness. And where does he fall? Boldness. We need to be careful. If you've got an area of your life where you think you've got it all figured out and you've got it nailed down and you're all good, oh, fall on your knees and say, Lord, help me. Amen? We need to remain desperate for Him. So in review, if the worship team will come back up. The priests and the scribes saw Jesus as a threat to their lifestyle. Judas turned against Jesus because he wouldn't satisfy his fleshly desires. The disciples were so centered and self-promoting that they were oblivious to much of what He had taught them. Peter was so self-confident and prideful that he trusted in his own abilities instead of being desperate for God. Take heed lest ye fall. But our Savior had a heavenly and eternal perspective. He loved, he served, and he esteemed others greater than himself, even though there's nobody greater than him. Amen? He esteemed others greater than himself, even though there's nobody greater than him. May we be broken and desperate for God. Well, now as we prepare for communion, I mean, and it's perfect, the text we looked at today. I just want to say a couple things, and we're going to enter into some worship and take communion. As we take communion... First of all, we're looking back to the cross. We're looking back to what Jesus did for us. And I thank God that He said, it is finished. Amen? It is finished. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Amen? Not Jesus plus these 47 steps. Not all these other rules and ways and paths. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And there's no other way man can get to heaven, only through Jesus Christ. Amen? And so, He said, it's finished. And so as we partake of the elements, we're looking back to the cross and we're remembering what He's done for us. His body and His blood that was broken for us. And then, as we take communion, we're also looking forward to that day when we will have this feast again with Him in heaven. Praise the Lord. But may we also be looking within. Because the Bible says we're not to take communion lightly. We're to examine our hearts. And so here's what we're going to do. Here's how we do things here at Calvary Santa Cruz. If you're here, we don't, there's no membership. If you're here, you're, that's it. I mean, there's no membership in the Bible. Once you give your life to Jesus Christ, you're part of the church. Amen? So if you're here for the first time, you're just visiting, whatever it might be, you're part of this church. The communion's for you if you're a Christian. All right? And the way we do it here is we're going to go, they're going to have to play some music. And what I would encourage you to do is take a few moments and do those three things. Think back to the cross. Think forward to what's coming. And take a moment and examine your own heart. And then just come on up as you, uh, uh, in a few minutes and take the elements, go back and sit down. You can sit with your wife or with your family or whatever you've got with you, your husband, whatever. And just go ahead and take the elements. And again, the bread is the body of Christ that was broken for us. And the juice is the shed blood. And through one drop, all the sins of all mankind was paid for. And only perfect, holy God, Jesus Christ, could restore sinful man back to a holy God. Amen? That's why He's the only way we can get to heaven. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank You and we praise You, Lord. You're such a great and a wonderful God. And we thank You for the sacrifice that You paid for us on the cross. Lord, we thank You that You are that perfect Lamb of God. And Lord, as we go to this time of communion, may we look back to the cross and remember that work that was done for us. Lord, and we look forward to the day when we will have this feast with You in heaven. And Lord, may we examine our own hearts from within. Lord, if there's sinful part... Lord, reveal my sin to me, Father. Lord, I just confess to You that I'm, I'm an imperfect man in desperate need for You. I pray, Lord, that we would all just come to that end of ourselves, Lord, and cry out to You. So, Lord, we love You. We praise You, Lord. And during this time of communion, may You be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.